Welcome to your New Mexico government. I'm your host, Khalil e. Colonna. Today, we are looking into the ones that got away. And no, we're not talking about your ex that you were reconsidering due to social distancing, but rather the stories that got buried in the constant news cycle of a global pandemic, an uprising for racial and social justice, and oh yeah, the elections. Today, we hear from the CEO of the New Mexico Restaurant Association, a former deputy chief of APD, and a medical supplies manufacturer. We also have an update on the status of custodial workers at UNMH. But up next, executive producer Marisa DeMarco is back with a news update of what we know today, Thursday, June 25th, as of 5 p.m. Globally, the pandemic is getting worse, and it's resurging in Europe, the BBC reports. If unchecked, the World Health Organization is warning this will, quote, push health systems to the brink once again. The country's second most affected by coronavirus is Brazil, which has reported 50,000 deaths, according to Al Jazeera. Here in the United States, the most affected country in the world, there are reported 124,000 fatalities. CDC health officials in the U.S say there have been 2.3 million confirmed cases here, but the reality is more like 20 million, almost 10 times as many multiple news outlets are reporting. Because for every single confirmed case, 10 more people have the antibodies. The New York Times analyzed travel patterns, hidden infections, and genetic data to show how the virus got out of control here. A quote from that reporting, at every crucial moment, American officials were weeks or months behind the reality of the outbreak. Those delays likely cost tens of thousands of lives. Find the damning investigation called How the Virus Won on the New York Times website. Today, four states posted single-day highs, spikes in infections. That that includes our neighbor Texas, which had almost 6,000 new cases today, according to the Washington Post. Westerly neighbor Arizona is also seeing a sharp rise in the number of cases. In New Mexico, five more people have died, officials say, and 207 more people have tested positive for coronavirus. The Santa Fe New Mexican reports the upward trend in cases will pause the reopening process by at least a week. And that jump is attributable in part to people traveling to those neighboring states and then back, public officials say. If people don't socially distance, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham says schools will not be able to reopen in the fall. Still, so far, the number of people who are hospitalized in New Mexico for COVID-19 has gone down. In the Otero County prison, 76% of the people in prison there are unable to recover from the virus, the Albuquerque Journal reports, partly because of how people sleep, dorm style on cots three feet apart, according to Health Secretary Kathy Kunkel. The prison is on the same property as the ICE detention facility there and the federal prison, where there are also outbreaks. For your New Mexico government, I'm Marisa DeMarco. My next guest is joining me again. You may remember him from a while ago when we talked about people stepping up to provide what is necessary for the community during this time. I'd like to welcome Dave Mayberry. He is with MarPAC. They make medical devices. Thanks again for being with me, Dave. How are you? I'm doing well. How about yourself, Khalil? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay, you know, despite everything that's happening. Your company switched to making masks that were like N95s when there was a shortage at the beginning of the pandemic. How did you all ensure that they are comparable in filtration? We were fortunate enough to get uh, partnered up with some folks there um, at the City National Labs through some small business administration programs. We were able to tie out with those folks and we would supply various materials or composite materials, different layered materials 
And those folks then had uh, various testing equipment, and they would look at those items for us and evaluate it and give us some suggestions on things that worked better or worse, and we'd make those adjustments and submit some more samples and proceed on to something that we finally got was indeed uh, comparable to an N95 respirator. Excellent. Now, when you heard our stories a few weeks back about custodial workers at UNMH not being sure that they had enough PPE, what was your response to that? You know, a little bit surprised and certainly just a, a level of compassion out for those folks that they're going to likely put themselves into harm's way. There's anything we could do to help with that. We want to try to do that. I reached back to one of your program director folks who supplied me with some information and some contacts and reached out to some folks at UNM and then also reached out to some folks with the union that helped support the employees down there. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, we didn't quite make the connections that, that I would have liked to have made. And so at, at this point, we have yet to provide a, a good solution for anybody down there. So if they're still looking for assistance, we'd still love to help out with that. So you did not hear back at all from UNMH? Didn't hear back from two different folks there. There was a supervisory capacity there for the custodial team. Someone within there, one of the PPE chairs, didn't get a single response. Um, I know everyone down there is busy with, with lots of situations, so I understand that, but didn't really have an opportunity to connect with those folks, no, sir. So do you still have masks that you all made? We still do. So we probably got about 400 of that uh, this variety right now. There's some folks that are looking for that, whether that be in, in nursing homes, healthcare providers, ICU. We'd love to help. We've got the reports that will substantiate the filtration qualifications. So just reach out to us and, and we can help. You better get ready. I'm sure a lot of people are going to reach out to you because <laughs> PPE is still in need. That That's a little surprising to me that no one responded back to you. UNMH was not allowing staff to bring in their own PPE even when there was a shortage. And we've heard from frontline workers on the show that this was extremely frustrating. Now, you're sitting on a pile of masks, so how does this all strike you? It is a little confusing, maybe, is the best word, but I understand, and again, that in our current medical manufacturing of products, there's lots of concerns with liability. There is definitely a litigious nature out in the community nationwide and worldwide now, more so than when I grew up as a kid. I think everyone wants to make sure that they're doing as best they can. And, and I can understand at some level, if someone wants to bring in something, if it's in addition to what, what the hospital may be supplying, I wouldn't see any, any harm or foul in that. If folks really don't have any good options provided to them by an employer or that type of situation, it definitely puts folks in kind of a tough spot. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we're in the midst of reopening where we're still seeing more cases. Tell me, what's next for MARPAC when it comes to responding to concerns about fighting the coronavirus? So we actually make a cloth mask that we have sold, I'm going to say, about 45,000 actually to Sandy National Labs. Mm-hmm. We've sold some to Dion's. We've sold some to, to a lot of folks. So there's sometimes occasionally some mixed messages that you might see versus what you might hear, what someone does or doesn't do. I think having facial protection is a good thing. Yeah. And that's going to help prevent anything that I might have, whether I'm asymptomatic, going to help reduce anything that I might uh, pass on to somebody else. We've looked at that. We've come up with some solutions for that. Still got another probably thirty or 40,000 cloth masks to make that are on order. And we're currently still taking orders for that. That is a minimum of 100. So we're not necessarily doing just a couple, three, couple, four for individual folks type of thing. Well, your help is greatly appreciated by myself and others. I hope the next time we talk, you're telling me that these masks are flying off of the shelves and you guys can't keep up with the orders. He's Dave Mayberry. He's with Marpac. Thanks again for being with me, Dave. Sure thing. My pleasure. Thanks. Have a great day, Cleo. You too.
Joining me now is KUNM reporter Yasmeen Khan. She's here to talk about the ongoing situation with UNM custodial workers. Yasmeen, how's it going? It's all right. I'm all right. Thank you, Khalil. Good. I'm glad to hear that. So a few weeks ago, we carried on the show your reporting about how custodial workers at the UNM hospital said that they were being treated poorly. Among some of their top issues was that they say they didn't have adequate PPE. As far as you know, have any of those problems been addressed? No, not yet. We did talk with some UNMH officials and talk to some people that are working with the union, and I don't think they've gotten their N95 masks that they wanted to have. Mm -hmm. Um, It's interesting because although some of us think the pandemic is winding down, it's not. Our neighboring states, it's increasing, which means that hospitals are still treating COVID patients here which means hospital staff, including cleaning crew, are still exposed to the virus. You know, so many people who work in hospitals, they want to get some hazard pay, including the cleaning crew at UNMH Hospital. They're calling out the CEO for making so much money when they're on the front Mm -hmm. lines and make so little. So what kind of pay gap are we talking about? So CEO Kate Becker, she gets a semi-annual bonus, so twice a year bonus, of more than $67,000 each bonus. So she's eligible for two $67,000 bonuses per year, in addition to her salary of almost $640,000. So this bonus was approved by Paul Roth, who's CEO of the UNM Health System. And I want to point out that Becker's, you know, with the bonuses, it's almost $775,000 in salary that's pulled from public funding. So Becker got her last bonus in April, two days after UNMH workers picketed for access to PPE, safe working conditions, paid administrative leave when they're quarantined. The union has also been pushing for years for raises for cleaning crew staff. And as one union member put it, she said it was months of just scraping, scraping, scraping to even just get a 30 cent raise. Um, Union representatives say uh, some cleaning crew staff who've been working for 10 years at the hospital still make less than $11 an hour. Wow. So... Basically, at this point, when we're talking about attention to white supremacy, racial injustice, we also have to look at who has access to resources, both money and, in this case, access to protective gear to prevent COVID contamination. Someone decided that cleaning crew can't access the masks that are available at the hospital and that they also can't have donated masks and that their mental well-being is not worth addressing. So it's not a lack of materials, it's a lack of access. Do you have any idea or you have a sense of what the union is going to do next? Well, they did just participate in a national workers first caravan on June 17th that was from Roosevelt Park to UNMH where they demanded that new Mexico policymakers face the systemic racism that affects low-wage and undocumented workers. The National Caravan also pushed for Congress to pass the $3 trillion HEROES Act, which would authorize another set of stimulus payments. But this time, those stimulus payments need to reach people with tax ID numbers, not just those of us with Social Security numbers. Mm -hmm. And every worker I've talked with, from childcare worker to cleaning crew staff, stresses that they pay taxes, whether they're undocumented or not, but they're not eligible for government benefits such as stimulus checks. Mm -hmm. I think the union is going to continue pushing for PPE, continue pushing for better wages, and to really highlight the huge disparity in wages between a a CEO and a healthcare worker. I mean, it's, it's enormous, and it's especially frustrating when it is public salaries and it's not, this isn't a private company, this is, this is public funds. Yeah. From New Mexico taxes. And while we're all still fighting a global pandemic, 
It would be good to know that the local hospitals who are working hard, very hard, every all the medical staff there, one would hope that they're looking out for every person who steps foot in that hospital, from the custodial workers to the CEO. Well, we're going to keep our eyes on this. Thank you very much. She's Yasmin Khan with KUNM. Yasmin, thank you for your reporting. Thank you, Khalil. We asked UNM Hospital about whether custodial workers had received the additional PPE they said they needed and why UNMH did not respond to emails from the company making masks that have comparable filtration to N95s. Spokesperson Mark Rudy said the hospital has enough PPE and created job-specific guidance around what protective material to wear and when to wear it. He said the hospital is not accepting PPE donations because regulatory approvals are required. We also asked if any of the cleaning crew's concerns that were reported on weeks ago have been addressed. He said, as he said back then, that there were many ways for people to reach out and they do respond when people identify themselves. We'll have the full back and forth on this post online. This is Your NM Government. I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. We're covering life during the pandemic and how what's happening affects us all differently. As far as we know, this is our last week on the air, Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays, but you can always dig through these episodes online at KUNM.org. What has escaped you as we live during the pandemic? What are you concerned about that's not being addressed? This may be the end of the run of shows on Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays, but you still have time to call up our hotline and leave a message. We'll interview you. Call 505-218-7084 or email yournmgov at gmail.com. My next guest is Deborah Cutis. She is the former SWAT commander and deputy chief at APD. She currently serves as facility and security officer at UNM. Deborah, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you for having me. So give us a little background on your history with APD. What jobs did you hold? Well, I started in 1979. I moved my way up through the ranks, sergeant, lieutenant, captain, and retired as deputy chief. I worked beginning in the Southeast Area Command, and I also ended my career there, working patrol, also as a supervisor. I was a police academy instructor. I worked undercover narcotics. I oversaw radio dispatch and records. You name it, I worked at at APD. So like in every part of... Every part, internal affairs as well. Okay. You wrote an op-ed for the Albuquerque Journal criticizing the police response to the shooting at the demonstration near the Onyate statue. What do you think went wrong out there? Well, first of all, APD was not on scene. And it's my understanding they knew there was armed militia people there. Mm-hmm. And you don't just let protesters spend for themselves. They can't protect themselves against that. So you've got to give them a safe place to protest and ATD did not do that. We've seen, you know, the community decrying the militarization of police. We saw the police respond to the statue demonstration in a way that really escalated tensions. There's so much confusion going on out here. What do you think is wrong behind the scenes? You know, as someone who used to run the SWAT team, you've been involved in all facets of the police department. Do you have a sense on how this could be playing out differently? The only thing that I can think of is that that was the word that came down from leadership. Hmm. I don't know if it was from the mayor's office or the chief of police to be parked off-site to wait for things to turn bad. That's the only thing that could have happened. The SWAT team doesn't stand down unless that happens. Mm-hmm. 
So that would be more of a tactical mistake in your opinion? I think it's a lack of common sense hmm. decision. I don't think it had anything to do with tactical. All I can assume is that they didn't want any interference with the protests because if you're not there, nothing bad can happen, you know, between the police and, and the community. But in my opinion, that shooting would not have happened if police was on site. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people feel that way about the incident. You write that you brought the first armored cars to APD a long time ago. What was your intent in getting those vehicles that look like tanks? Actually, it was one vehicle. Okay. And my intent was simply to have an armored vehicle to rescue hostages from active shooters. Mm. If they were laying out in the open, we had to have something to drive up and get them and take them to safety without sacrificing the safety of officers. When did you make that purchase? We actually didn't buy it. We uh, were given that from Sandia Labs. I believe it was 1990 or 91. You gave a talk at TEDx ABQ in 2014. You talk about body cameras and how cases are thrown out because there's no video. What do you make of the legislature passing mandatory body cams and how do we ensure that they're turned on in the field? Because too many times across the country we hear of an incident happening. The officer had a body camera, but it wasn't activated. Unfortunately, like I said in my TED talk, people would believe me back then in the 70s and 80s when I said something, but we've lost trust. So, unfortunately, we have to have those, not only to protect citizens, but to protect officers from false allegations against them. So, when an officer looks at it that way, that it could also help them, then it's a much easier sell. If they don't turn it on, if they erase the tape, then people are going to automatically think negative Mm -hmm. and think that they're guilty of something. So, it's not going to be a smart thing to do. And that only does more to erode the trust, the very little trust that's there between the community and police departments. And that is everything. We have to care about each other. We have to trust each other. We have to understand each other. When that happens, we have a partnership, and that makes it safer for all of us. And respect is included in that. You have to respect each other. Yeah. So that has to happen or nothing's gonna change. We've heard from folks in the International District in Albuquerque that their community is incredibly over-policed by a bunch of agencies. Would you agree with that statement? And if so, I mean, why do you think that community is getting so many law enforcement agencies involved with it? Well, I can't speak for it now, but the majority of my career was in the International District. Mm -hmm. Back then it was called the War Zone. Yeah. We don't call it that anymore because when we started community policing there, the name changed, the attitudes between police and community changed, but when 9-11 happened, the police departments became more militarized and we lost that. Hmm. And if that's how they feel in the International District, then that's how they feel. Yeah. I mean, we have to do something about that. Perception is everything. There seems to be this link between the increased militarization of police and the eroding trust the community has. In your mind, how do you see those two playing together? Being a police officer is a dangerous profession. Mm-hmm. And we have to balance their sense of fear and vulnerability. But when there's fear on both sides, police are afraid of the community 
community is afraid of the police. Until we change that, it's just going to get worse. Mm. What can we do to restore that trust? To, again, to start communicating with each other, to start showing that we care and respect and trust each other. That's what it's going to take. And we had that at one time. Yeah. And it's broken now. And uh, that's what needs to be fixed. I mean, you know, wearing the military uniforms, that's not how it was when I left 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. I, I was just shocked when I saw the response after the shooting. I didn't feel like I was in Albuquerque. Mm. And that, it was sad to me. And felt like this was not the city or the police force no. you remember being with for so long. True. I'm not saying that when I was there, we were perfect either. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that at all. But we did. We were in touch with our community. And we're not anymore. The police department has been long in a reform process because of the Department of Justice investigation and the results of that. Yes. You know, the community says the problems still persist. I mean, so what's going wrong? I mean, that Department of Justice investigation was some time ago. And if these problems are still going on after they've been noted locally, statewide, and nationally, what has to happen? Well, I read the DOJ report, and I don't remember it saying in there that... We had to have a partnership with the community. Mm. It's focused on excessive force, but that's, that's all a part of it. Mm. There will be less excessive force on both the police and the community if we care about each other, mm -hmm. if we trust each other. Mm -hmm. So the focus was not on that type of change, a culture change. It was a focus on, you guys made a new excessive force policy and 70 people to make sure you're doing it right, because that's what they have now. Mm. So they need to change their focus and add this to it. You have to change the culture. In the police academy, you have to stress why you're there, what the oath of office means. I remember when I was an instructor at the police academy, we had one hour in the first week talking about the oath of office. And then we have them repeat it after a judge during graduation. But what we should have done and what they should do today is bring it up every day in some form so that it's stuck with them, so that they understand why they're getting that badge. One hour doesn't cut it. That, that, yeah, let me ask you about that. You were an instructor. About how many hours in police training are dedicated to tactical situations, use of force, firearms, apprehending suspects, chasing suspects down, as compared to this community development portion that you've been speaking about? The majority of it. The majority of the 600 hours. And I feel like it should be longer than 600 hours. When you get a badge, you have so much responsibility. You know, 600 hours? I mean, they need to change the way they train cops. We've got to include topics and instructors from sociology and criminology and psychologists and lawyers and leaders of minority groups. Because it used to be just cops teaching cops. And mm. I don't know what it is today, but that's not enough. Yeah. And we have to just eliminate the us versus them dialogue. Yeah. And the uh, stressing of your goal is to go home safe at night. I even forgot to say 
your goal is to go home safe at night and make sure the citizens go home safe at night. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. I'm angry with myself for not including that and just get rid of that thin blue line. Mm -hmm. I mean, just stop talking about that. Yeah. Because that's another us versus them. And it's not us versus them. We're all in this together. That's the truth. I have another question to ask, but you said something that really brought brought something to mind. You know, there's been a lot of people talking about, in my personal conversations I have with friends and family about what's been happening and this beginning national dialogue of reforming police departments and how we're going to police. You know, one thing I try to convey to people who are particularly mad, they're, they're very caught up in this us versus them dichotomy that you just mentioned. They really want to lambast and go after police officers. But I have had some good interactions with police officers that I've gotten to know. And I'm like, look, you have to understand, look at the job. The job is every time you leave for work, your life is in danger. From what I understand, at least initially, police officers aren't paid very well. Yeah. The stresses Correct. that come along with that job, just understanding the human element of someone taking anything outside of any racial implicit or explicit biases a human may have but understanding that a human being in that situation possibly with a family to support how stressful that could be do you think that in this communication you're talking about between police force and the community if people really understood the human behind the badge the human behind you know the suit or whatever clothing a civilian may be wearing do you think that's something that can happen? I think that has to happen. But we also have to understand the community's issues as well. Mm -hmm. It's a two-way street. Yeah. It's not just how they look at us, it's how we look at them. And you brought up implicit bias. I mean, that needs to be in the training as well. Mm. For people to say, I am not a racist. I don't have a racist bone in my body. That's not true. We all do. And we have to learn how to deal with it. Yeah particularly if we were raised in the United States, we all ha have a little <laughs> yes. bit of that to work out. Speaking of that, you know, the state, New Mexico, does not collect race and ethnicity data within the criminal justice system, which makes it very hard to see what's going on for policymakers, the courts and law enforcement. Uh -huh. So do you think this type of data should be collected and what are the challenges there for law enforcement? That kind of information is on the report form, so I don't see how that would be difficult to catch. Okay. Um, but the other database that we need is when an officer has been terminated for excessive force. Hmm. Because as it stands now, they can go from New Mexico to Colorado to anywhere else and be a cop. And they're not going to change. I mean, there's a lot. There's just a lot that needs to change. Yeah. You know, from intervening when you see someone using excessive force to reporting it to your supervisor and not keeping it quiet. And for a change in culture with the union, yes, there are some police officers that it's appropriate to make sure the discipline is imposed fairly. But when you see that same officer coming before you over and over and over again, it's time to let the discipline go through. Mm -hmm. So much that needs to be addressed. Yeah. And it's got to be done quickly. I mean, we can't wait any longer. No, no, we can't. I see a lot of genuflecting by corporations and lawmakers and policymakers. What I'm seeing on social media is that people are asking for action. And speaking about actions, like, do you speak with people at APD now, officers or supervisors, about how this could be going better? I did at one point, and it's just so different right now with being under the DOJ reform. Yeah. They're just focused on 
certain things. I offered training for supervisors to the last administration, and it didn't happen. So I have offered my services in different ways, but haven't been taken up on it. I want to thank you so much for coming on to the show, sharing your experience and your views. She is Deborah Cutis. She is a former SWAT commander and deputy chief at the Albuquerque Police Department. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. We'll put the entire interview on this post online at KUNM.org. We want to hear your story. What's shaping you during this time of change? Call up our hotline, leave a message, and we may play your story on air. Call 505-218-7084 or email yournmgov at gmail.com. And we are on Facebook. Look for the Your NM Gov page and like it. My next guest is Carol White. She is the CEO of the New Mexico Restaurant Association. Welcome, Carol. How are you? I'm wonderful today. How are you? I'm doing okay. So let me ask you, times are really tough for local businesses, especially restaurants and hospitality businesses. Does your organization have any sense of how many will have to remain closed during this time? You know, right now the governor has us opening up at 50% and even some restaurants have decided not to do that just because they can't make enough money to pay their bills and payroll and things like that. So some are not opening, but most of them are. And you know, trying to figure out how to make things work with COVID safe practices and everything else that's going on. They're managing, but just barely. So talk to me about what some of the rules and regulations that are kind of messing with the restaurants right now, as far as like the safety measures. I know that cooks in the kitchen are having a real problem with face masks. Mm -hmm. You know, some of them passing out because they can't get enough air. It's hot. Yeah. If you had to walk through a kitchen, you understand how hot it is and how really difficult that piece is. So we're trying to figure that out and maybe figure out face shields or something else that will work in that situation. Other than that, I think restaurants are figuring out what COVID safe practices mean to them and their customers. So how do servers or business owners balance keeping good relationships with customers? Because that's what the service industry is really about. You get so many regulars to come in because of the relationship that they have with the business. How do they manage that against trying to keep everyone healthy? So it's not easy. In the beginning, there was a real angst around, well, this customer won't wear masks and they're getting mad at us. This restaurant was even handing them masks. Please just wear this going in. Mm-hmm. Don't make us make you do something that, you know, that, that we're being made to do. I do think some of that's calming down a little bit. I think we've, we've figured out where we're at on that. But not everybody's going out yet. And, and yeah. as more go out, we'll have maybe more confrontations. Yeah. So the city council, they're calling for additional supports for people working, including temporary paid sick leave, hazard pay, providing workers PPE. So what's your association take on those measures, particularly the sick leave and hazard pay? So I don't know where these counselors have been for the last three, four months. Hmm. We haven't been open. We've been paying bills that are there no matter what in a time when we haven't been able to make any money. There is no money for this. I don't know what makes them think that we have all this money just lying around ready to give out. You know, we're barely able to bring our employees back. We're barely open at 50%. Somebody, a restaurant told me yesterday it would cost his restaurant $68,000 every payroll. Wow. And he said they can't do that. That's just not possible. 
plus the federal government has already mandated sick leave for anybody with COVID or COVID-related you know, problems, even employees that have to stay home and take care of their kids because their schools are shut down. Yeah. And the federal government is paying for that. Now, if the city wants to pay for some of this, that's great. I understand your concerns, but what about the workers in this situation? I've been to work many times where I've had to send workers home because they've come in feeling a little bit under the weather because they desperately need the money. They cannot afford to miss work. Understanding that if somebody's even a little bit under the weather and they're ha- operating, handling food and drinks, that's the potential for it to spread. What type of safety measures or at least assurances are, can workers look forward to that the Restaurant Association supports? So back again to what's happening with the federal government. The federal government passed the Families First Coronavirus Act. That was the first COVID act that they passed. And it allows for employees to take sick leave. And again, the federal government pays us back for that so that it doesn't come out of the pockets of businesses that are struggling. Mm -hmm. Actually, Congress is the only one who has come up with any kind of amelioration. Um, We have seen nothing from the state. They just passed something to give, I think it was loans to businesses. Businesses don't need loans right now. They need money to help them pay payroll. They need money to help them get back on their feet. Well, we're going to keep an eye on this because the restaurants are open. We're going to keep an eye on the funds that are coming your way and also on the health of the employees. I want to thank you so much for coming on to the show. She is Carol White. She is the CEO of the New Mexico Restaurant Association. Thanks again, Carol. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. On tomorrow's show, we look into the people and organizations who are making up the difference and making a difference in the response to the COVID-19 pandemic. We look into how people are taking action to help. That's tomorrow at 7 p.m. It's about that time for resources. Find a full list of the resources we talk about on each episode and opportunities to donate or help online at bit.ly slash ynmghub. If you're looking for PPE, you should learn more about the efforts of Marpac Medical by heading to marpacmedical.com. That's M-A-R-P-A-C medical.com. Find out more about the New Mexico Restaurant Association by looking up nmrestaurants.com. And be sure to watch the insightful TEDx ABQ talk given by Deborah Cutis. It's absolutely amazing. Head to this episode's post at KUNM.org and the link will be there for you. And check out the great reporting from Yasmin Khan and the rest of the KUNM news team at KUNM.org. We'll post all the links to her coverage of the treatment of the cleaning crew at UNM Hospital online at KUNM.org. It seems like this is our last week of shows that will be aired on Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays on KUNM. We don't really know what comes next, but as always, you can find the show on KUNM.org or subscribe anywhere, anywhere, I mean anywhere, you get your podcasts. Your New Mexico government is a collaboration between KUNM, New Mexico PBS, and the Santa Fe Reporter. Funding for our coverage is provided in part by the Thornburg Foundation, the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, the New Mexico Local News Fund, and KUNM listeners like you. Your New Mexico government is executive produced by Marisa DeMarco. Theme music by Pope. Yes, yes, y'all. It's produced by yours truly. News update by Marisa DeMarco. And many, many thanks to Ty Bannerman and Kave Movahead for their help. I'm Khalil Colonna, And for everyone here at Your New Mexico government, thanks for listening.